You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Kick is live. It is Thursday night, April 14th, year of our Lord, 2022. We have gone on the record 251 consecutive shows, you and I, without doing a single segment on ESPN FPI rankings. And tonight, from me to you, I promise you, this will be show number 252. Not going to do it. Not falling for it. That's bait. That's what that is. We're not falling for it. I'll tell you what we are falling for, though. We're going to listen to Nick Saban. He warned us. Time and time again, and maybe we did or didn't listen in the past. Well, we as a show are at least going to try and listen tonight. Also, harsh allegations being thrown at me that I have been condoning and even defending coach speak. I vehemently disagree. It's one of the many fancy words producer Jesse tried to use around the newsroom today. I don't know who he's trying to impress because it's us and the janitorial service in the building, but vehemently disagree. That's what I'll do to that tonight. Also, there's a difference between being college football famous and being real world famous. And there aren't very many people who are both. That includes me. Maybe I'm neither. But there is someone who absolutely is both. I'm going to talk about it tonight because it is a full wall-to-wall mailbag Q&A show. Uh, Right now, it is the go-home show, as they would say in pro wrestling. We don't have a pay-per-view Sunday. We do have Easter Sunday. So I'm driving home in about two hours. I drove 847 miles yesterday and 400 the day before, so over 1,100 total miles to see nary a tornado. Cursed would be too strong a word, but I am on a very, very pronounced dry spell right now. Not happy about it, but I will not let it impact my performance tonight. They are watching us in Mexico City, Mexico. They are watching us, believe it or not, in Nicaragua, Central America, and Happy New Year's in Sri Lanka. I know it's New Year's because one of you told me because you're watching from Sri Lanka. Also, it should be noted, China Spring, Texas is tuned in, as is Columbus, Ohio, and Stoneham, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for being tuned in. Let's dive right into the mailbag tonight, because like I said, to lead this show, warnings, warnings, warnings. Didn't have enough in the tornadic variety yesterday, but boy, do we have one when it comes to Nick Saban. So first, let me read the question, then I'll get you the quote, and then I'll tell you at least what this guy thinks about it. So Daniel hit us up. He said, uh, do people really believe that this is Nick Saban losing power. Every time Nick Saban asks if this is what we want college football to be, isn't it more of a warning? Now, what is Daniel talking about? If you've been out in left field over the past 48 hours, you may not know. On May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? <laughs> Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount+. Plus. 
Hello everyone, it's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets. Nick Saban did an interview, wide-ranging in nature, with the Associated Press, the AP. And I believe it was Ralph Russo. So Nick Saban had some interesting quotes. I picked this one out, but you could go read the whole thing if you want to. He's talking, of course, about NIL and transfer portal and stuff. So this, uh, in part, is what Nick Saban had to say. The concept of name, image, and likeness was for players to be able to use their name, image, and likeness to create opportunities for themselves. That's what it was. But that creates a situation where you can basically buy players. You can do it in recruiting. I mean, if that's what we want college football to be, I don't know. And you can also get players to get in the portal to see if they can get more someplace else than they can get at your place. That was Nick Saban talking to the AP. Now, as is usually the case, when these sorts of things happen, you have two camps that form. Anytime Nick Saban talks about any change in college football, it's been this way for a decade. Anytime Saban talks about change in college football, you got two camps form. One is the more, I think, rational camp who says, uh, this guy's pretty old, pretty wise. He's won. He's been around the block a time or 10. Maybe we should listen to him. And then there's this other camp whose, I think, memory goes back about 15 seconds. And they say, uh-oh, he's threatened. Uh-oh, he sounds scared to me. But then all you have to do if your memory does jog back longer than 15 seconds is remember all of the warnings, because that's exactly what that is, all the warnings he's given us in the past. It could have been about expanding the playoff. Since then, we've actually had Alabama win a title in a year where they didn't even win their conference. And he told you, well, we're kind of going to make it in uh, more Is this really what you want the sport to be? Because it's going to devalue bowl season. All that happened. Everything he said was going to happen, happened. It hasn't hurt Alabama in the least. He told you famously, is this what you want football to be when the offensive evolution was happening? And a lot of the college coaches that were defensive minded, they had a problem with the offensive lineman three yard downfield versus one yard, which is the rule in the pros and the tempo based offenses. And Nick Saban asked, is this what you want? And a lot of people were foolish enough to actually think a guy who can get his pick of any coach and any player in America, therefore run any scheme he wants to, was scared. He wasn't scared. He was telling you at the time, if you knew how to interpret it properly, I can do whatever I want to here. I'm quite literally asking you, is this what you want me to do? Because if you do, I'm going to remove even more margin for error, and I'm going to make this thing even more exact, and I'm just going to bleed you to death every Saturday. It's not going to be in the boa constrictor mentality. I'm just going to chop you up in 47 pieces. Graphic, I know, but that's kind of what they do now offensively. They, they have been the best offensive team or one of the best in college football over the past five or six years now because apparently America told him, yeah, this is what we want college football to be. So he just keeps hoisting trophies. He told you about the portal. He told you about NIL. Uh, Those in many ways have been disasters so far. It's good that players can benefit off their name, image, and likeness. As he said, that's not where it stopped. So anyway, we know all that, or at least most of us are aware of all that. Where are we going now? Where is he going with this? So 
as I said, I was on the road yesterday. When I got back, I opened my inbox, and a lot of people wanted to talk about this. That's why we're leading the show with it tonight. But also, a lot of people watched Jameer Gibbs, for example, leave Georgia Tech to go to Alabama. And you got a kid at Louisville right now, wide receiver that's in the portal that is strongly connected, at least, to Alabama. And you've heard uh, rumors of other kids that may go in the portal. Uh, Jermaine Burton went from Georgia to Alabama. And so a lot of you, and here's what I want to straighten up right quick. As soon as Bama gets a player, you come in my inbox and you say, tampering, tampering. And while I'm not in the living room and I'm not on the phone when these conversations are happening, I am privy to at least some of the inner workings of the program. So I don't speak for the program or the university, but I can confidently tell you, and I want you to lean in because I don't want this to really get out. A lot of players are actually reaching out to Alabama to see if they have room, you know? Would you believe it if I told you Nick Saban doesn't even have to leave his office? They don't have to even get on the phone. A lot of players come to them to ask them. I would be willing to pay money if the University of Alabama could give me a list of kids on other rosters, boys and girls, who have reached out to them asking, you got room for me? That's Nick Saban's one being tampered with in that scenario, by the way. So anyway, what I am trying to reiterate is in the past, maybe I listened to him, maybe I didn't. But in the future, now and in the future, what I have learned is listen to what he's saying. Because what I at least respect about what Nick Saban does when he goes about making public statements is it's never off the cuff. He never talks about this stuff before thinking it through. You can always tell that. But where I disagree with some people is when he takes a stand on these sorts of things, a lot of people misconstrue it as, oh, he feels threatened and he's in a corner and now he's lashing out at change. That's not the case. That's never been the case. It's not going to be the case. Every major change that's happened in this sport, he has harnessed it. And not only has he gotten by, he has bettered Alabama. It'll be no different with NIL. It'll be no different with the portal, which is where my respect comes from. Because when I listen to him, he's not even talking about what's best for Bama. Truth be told, he knows as well as you and I, Bama could use this stuff and become even more invincible, even more powerful. He's actually taken time to remove that script A from his chest and speak on behalf of college football. Not many guys do that because not many guys have ever been as secure in their professional position and have ever secured their legacy in real time as solidly as Nick Saban has. He's one of the few who are qualified and who carry the gravitas in the conversation to where he can actually speak on behalf of college football. That's why I think the guy would make a great commissioner. If I don't decide to take the job, I'd love for him to take the job. Nick Saban is actually talking about what's in the best interest of college football. When he talks about what the portal's turned into, he's right. If he were to follow it up with saying, and if it continues, I'm going to dominate it. He'd also be right. When he's talking about NIL, if he wanted to continue his warning and say, but if this is the way it's going to be, we'll dominate you with it. He'd be right. They're the best at everything. And so they're going to harness whatever you allow. He's asking, and I'm asking, and everyone else who really loves the sport should be asking, is this what's best for the sport? There's always the threat of lawsuit. You know, anytime you dare push back on these these new progressive changes, according to some, in college football, there's always this threat of legal action. Well, now that the cat's out of the bag, you can't go back on it. You can't do this. You can't do that. Uh, well, that is partially true, but it also screams, let's at least take the hands off the wheel that got us here. Because when you talk about what's wrong with college football or anything, 
The logical follow-up is, okay, who's going to fix it? And therein lies your problem. No one has any clue what the answer to that portion of the college football question is. So I do know this. He's right, and he's not the only one. Dabo said kind of a version of this last week. Uh, Lane Kiffin has spoken out against it. They're just saying what everyone else is saying behind the scenes. Everyone, virtually everyone, feels this way in the coaching profession. And what it's going to result in, as I said the other day, is you're going to have more and more high-level, qualified, right-for-the-job type people exit the sport because they don't even recognize what it's turning into. We're not there yet. So there is still time to turn that around. you got to have the right hands on the wheel. That is imperative. Can't change it without that. All right, let's go to, let's go to the next question because this got me, this caught me off guard, actually. So Josh's imaginary friends, Colin and Jesse, that's the account name, asked, uh, I love your show, but I hate it when you defend these coaches when all they're doing is coach speak. Why do you do this? Hashtag hate kick. Since that is clearly what I do not do, let me tell you what I do like to do. What I do like to do is respect coaches who do engage in coach speak only because I think that may be the way that I would operate if I were them. Uh, Because of what happens, there's so much higher risk than there is reward if you're truly open and honest. Think about how guys get handled when they're truly honest, when they truly share their feelings with you. How does anyone these days get handled when they're authentic? In other words, when someone will step up publicly and say what everyone is saying privately amongst themselves, how do they get treated? You know the answer to that. Therefore, you should understand why so many people engage in coach speak. So I don't, I don't ever bemoan a guy's right to traffic in coach speak, to not give you anything because they don't owe you anything. You'll find out on Saturday. But part B of that, and I want to be really clear here, is I really appreciate when guys are open and honest, even if it may not stand to benefit them a whole lot. Dabo Swinney has been this way recently, and he's been that way for a while. Dabo Swinney has said a lot of stuff recently that he knows full well before the sentence finishes coming out of his mouth is going to be packaged up, misconstrued, miscontextualized, and used against him on the recruiting trail. He knows that. He knows that there are some agenda-based reporters out there, people in our space, who are going to intentionally take what he says out of context or not be responsible enough to go find the full context of his statements, and they're going to twist it against him to further said agenda. He knows that. And yet he's still willing to share with you what's on his heart. I appreciate that because we hardly get any of it. Nick Saban does it. We just talked about him. Lane Kiffin's done it recently. We've talked about him. Barry Odom the other night. We were talking about the Arkansas defensive coordinator. We played a clip from him. This is actually where one of the allegations came from the other night because this is not the first time that someone's thrown this at me. I played that clip from Barry Odom where he, paraphrasing, said, I've been a head coach before. If the right opportunity comes along, I'm going to be a head coach again. Like, I don't, I don't deny that. Most guys would not tell you that much. Most guys would never be forthright enough with you to let you ever know anything other than their current job has ever entered their mind, even though you and I both know it's true. Well, Barry Odom was honest with you the other day, and he said, yes, that's, all, that's there, and, and maybe one day it's going to be there, and I may take that opportunity. But right now, I love Arkansas, and he listed what he loved about Arkansas. That wasn't coach speak. If you listen to it, I don't know how you got that. Why do you think I played it on the show? It's not because I'm defending coach speak or I'm 
trying to prop up coach speak. We get a bunch of coach speak every day from all across the country. If I'm playing it on the show, it stands to reason it stands out. Like I thought what Barry Odom said stood out. So when these got Kirby Smart, I'll tell you another one. Kirby Smart, the day after the national championship game, when he sat down with Reese Davis, he could have given you a laundry list of coach speak bullet points of, well, tomorrow starts a new day. We got 24 hours to celebrate, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Yeah, it's philosophical, but it's coach speak. He didn't do that. Kirby Smart took the day after the national championship game on a national platform to talk about the current structure of the college football calendar and how it's leading to so much burnout with guys. We didn't know it at the time, but Matt Luke was about to leave his staff. Perfectly good assistant coach, former head coach. Guys should, in a normal capacity, a normal world, still have a couple of decades on his resume to go. He's out of here. Kirby Smart talked about it. The day after the national title game, he gave you that honesty. He said, I don't like where we are. I don't like where we're headed. It's not sustainable. And a lot of good men are leaving the game right now or going to the pro game because it's easier up there and or they're just getting out of the game entirely because they can't handle it mentally. That's not softness. Okay, there's, there's a certain level of hardness you have to have to be in that profession. He was talking about it extending well beyond that point. We're well beyond the point of having and possessing a certain mental toughness that we all need. He's talking about the structure of the game being the problem rather than your mental disposition being the problem. When he said that, when Barry Odom talked about weighing a potential job in the future versus what he has now, when Saban talks about NIL and the portal, when Dabo talks about the current landscape of college football and the, the risk reward on that front, I appreciate that. That's not coach speak. We don't prop up coach speak. If I propped up coach speak on this show, I've got two fictitious people over here in this room who would let me know the moment I walked out of the studio, dude, we just wasted a segment of you talking about coach speak. They would let me know. I would put my fingers in my ears, but I'd actually be listening to them. I'd just be pretending I wasn't. So I don't know where that came from. I would welcome, I welcome criticism. I get it all the time, but I thought that was just wrong. And so I figured, let's lower the pinata from the ceiling and beat it around on the show for a while. I appreciate the feedback. I just happen to disagree with it. Let's move on. The next one was one that I had to get restructured two or three times today. So Chris, avid viewer of the show, longtime fan of the show, he had a lot to say. It wouldn't fit on the screen. So here's what we actually arrived at. Colin, here's your end point. Chris asked, uh, when you hear people talk about programs like Arkansas or Tennessee or Ole Miss or Nebraska, the general feeling is those programs are what they are, and in today's game, they can never, ever get back to being powerhouses like it's over, and the fans should just accept that eight or nine wins is the best you're ever going to get to. That's your new ceiling. Am I an idiot when I have the opinion that if you hire the right guy, you can transform a program back? I think these programs need to be separated. I don't view Tennessee and Nebraska the same way. Okay, Nebraska, we may very well be living in a world where a recalibration of expectation is necessary. Maybe it's been necessary for a while. But you know what? At the same time, I don't hear a ton of Nebraska fans yelling and screaming that they're not in the national championship picture. They may be yelling and screaming when they don't make a bowl game, which they haven't done since 2016. Yeah, that's unacceptable at Nebraska. I don't care how much you recalibrate your expectation. Nebraska should, Nebraska should be everything Iowa is. There, there's nothing that you should be accomplishing at Iowa or Iowa State that you can't accomplish at Nebraska. That should be the baseline, okay? And if Iowa's doing it perennially, if Iowa State 
is at that level right now. Then I can look in the mirror at Nebraska and I can say, you know what, it's not a Nebraska problem or it's not a college football structure problem. Maybe it is a Nebraska problem. Having said that, now when we go a step further, back to Chris's question, and someone walks in the room and says, you know what, Nebraska cannot be a perennial national title contender anymore. If I'm being realistic, I may have to look at that person and say, you know what, until further evidence emerges, knowing how the sport works today, you may be right. Therein lies the need for the recalibration of expectation. Because if I'm a Nebraska fan and I view my ceiling, let's say, since that was the terminology used, as eight or nine wins, if I view that as the true north and then we get there, guess how I feel? I feel great. I feel like extending Scott Frost, if he so happens to be the person to get me there, and I feel like investing in the return that I'm getting further. Uh, because that's realistic. It would be unrealistic to hold Nebraska to a standard that there is no evidence right now that they could compete for. So that's Nebraska. But then we go into a different list of questions there with more teams. Ole Miss, I don't even think fits here. Like Chris asked about an eight or nine win ceiling. Ole Miss, like 10 minutes ago, they won double digit games and went to a New Year's Six game. So I, I think that's, we can push them to the side. Like Ole Miss is there. Ole Miss, in fact, this year, my excitement for Lane Kiffin is, number one, that he's still there because that was up in the air for a little while. And number two, you got to be excited that not only is he there, there's no Dan Mullen feel. It's not like Mullen, when he tried to get out, didn't get out, came back, and there were four flat tires on the program. And for all intents and purposes, last year was a throwaway season. Lane Kiffin came back, or didn't go anywhere, rather, and then they dominated the portal one of the best portal classes in the country. They got Jackson Dart, and he's competing with Luke Altmaier right now. Like, Ole Miss figures to be right there in the thick of it again this year. If Ole Miss was not in the SEC West, Ole Miss would be considered a dark horse playoff candidate in any other conference. That includes the Big Ten. If I parked them in any other conference and kept everything about the team the same, but they didn't have to face Bama, A&M, LSU, Auburn, Arkansas, whoever in the world they play from the East, you would consider them a dark horse playoff contender. But no one does because your brain understands what being in the SEC West means if you're not Alabama. But having said that, yes, Ole Miss can compete. They, could, they just did accomplish more than eight or nine wins. But then the next two programs were Arkansas and Tennessee. Ten you know what? Let me touch on Arkansas first. Arkansas, we've talked a lot about here for obvious reasons. I don't think I need to state them. For obvious reasons, though, we've talked about Arkansas a lot. Uh, we have some fun with it, but I'm dead serious when I say I think a lot's changing in Arkansas. I think there's a dynamic in play for Arkansas that hasn't been there since they've been in the Southeastern Conference, which goes back to the, what, the early 90s, I think, is when they came over here. Arkansas has always had a place in the pecking order of the SEC ever since they came into this conference. And it was always a rung or two below fill in the blank. Maybe it's LSU on top at the time, or Florida, or Alabama for an extended period of time, LSU, Georgia. Those programs have all shown Tier 1 capability in the SEC. Arkansas hasn't, at least not for a sustained period of time. You could have a flash season, a pop season, but they could never do it four or five consecutive years. They're, they're not going to be in Atlanta three out of five years. That's not going to happen, or at least that's what history tells us. I genuinely think there's a dynamic shift going on at Arkansas. This is why we spent so much time talking about it the other night. The only way you can change that is if you're not a Tier 3 or a Tier 2 program. When you're a Tier 1 program, 
the way you get there is by being a program that doesn't have to take a back seat, whether it be in recruiting. You don't have to wait to see if a kid gets an offer from someone else. And if he doesn't get it from them, okay, then I'll come play for you. You have to have all the players in the room. Alabama has to put an offer on the kid's table. Ohio State and Clemson have to put offers on the kid's table. And then he looks at you and says, you know what? I want to play for you anyway. Ditto for the transfer portal. Ditto for coaching. You have to have options. And then people with options have to continue to choose you. That is what is starting to happen at Arkansas. And that's why when I look at them from this point moving forward, I believe they'll be capable of doing things that they were not capable of doing to this point because the dynamics are changing. So that's my take on Arkansas. But what about Tennessee? Because this is one that I have to readjust myself in my chair for here. So this is one that we've talked about I don't know how many times since I got here. Director Collin is a Tennessee guy. So he and I talk about this all the time off the air, which is me just talking to a wall. So I guess the best way for me to ask this, for the people who don't believe Tennessee is capable of competing for a national championship anymore, is what does a program like Clemson possess that Tennessee does not possess? You could say, well, they've got an easier schedule, so therefore they've got theoretically a more workable path. Zoom it out further than that. Because the fact of the matter is, Clemson, if they played in the SEC East, would still have been very, very good over the last several years. The caliber of team that Dabo put together over the last, since 2014, 15, whenever that was, they started that national title run. Those teams would have still been there if they were in Knoxville, Tennessee. My question is what do they possess there that Tennessee doesn't? And if you can't come up with something better than the division or the conference they play in, then the answer is, well, if Clemson has been capable of doing it, Tennessee's always been capable of doing it. The answer is right in front of your face. They haven't hired the right coaches. They've made disastrous coaching hires. The administration at various points has been a mess. None of that is fake. It all happened. We've seen the results. It all happened. But it doesn't change the fact that Tennessee never stopped being capable of being a national player. Due to their own internal ineptitude at times, they sabotaged themselves. That's not the structure of college football changing. That's not the landscape evolving and leaving them in the dust. They've still had the fan passion the entire time. They've still had the investment the entire time. They've got the massive checkbook by nature of being in the SEC and by having those folks fully invested. Uh, they've got good facilities up there. They've continued to enhance and invest in that. Everything that you need to compete has been there. The people that you need in order to compete have not been there. But that's as easy and as hard as making the right hire. Maybe they just did it a little over 12 months ago. Maybe Josh Heupel is the right guy. Independent of who the head coach at Tennessee is, though. Let's just pretend like it's Josh Heupel or it's Mr. X, whoever it is. If that person is the right person, it's like unlocking a, a magical door. Everything you could ever want in college football is behind it. Tennessee never lost the key. Well, let me rephrase. They did lose the key. They never forgot where the door was. It's always been there. It's still there today. If Clemson can do it, absolutely Tennessee can do it. There's nothing different about those programs. I mean, geographically, they're very close to recruiting the same regions. I've always been a believer that if you zoom out, give me a little six-hour radius around Knoxville, you got all the talent you need. And if you can't get it there, go to the portal. And if you can't get it in either, 
than just go to California like they just did to pick up a five-star quarterback. There is nothing holding Tennessee back but Tennessee itself. You think you have nothing to fear but fear itself? Tennessee's had nothing to fear but Tennessee. So they've gotten that hopefully out of the way. And now we're starting to see some positive traction on the recruiting trail. And they overachieved last year in year one under Josh Heupel. So fingers crossed. I think I've told this story before, but my first day at 24-7, I got here and um, someone, we'll call him Luke Stampini. He was sitting next to me and we were talking about the next LSU because 2019 LSU had just sent traffic on that team site through the roof. And I said, oh, it's Tennessee. Like Tennessee, they're just waiting to explode. And he agreed. And I still think that today. Like Tennessee could go back to being a major regional to national brand. It's just been dormant. It's not extinct. It's just that T, the power T, it's just dormant right now. Colin, is that good enough? I think I pretty well surmised how we feel about Tennessee. I want them to be good because I want Colin to be happy. It's just a, it's just a better work environment when Colin smiles. I saw it once, I think last September, and then at the Christmas party he smiled once before he ghosted everyone abruptly. But, you know, Director Colin's been known to smile every now and then. I think Tennessee can make it happen a lot more often. Next up is foolishness. Next up, I want you to listen to this. Our buddy Parker at Stats of War, who knows better, but submitted this anyway, asked, would you rather fight 100 duck-sized Ed Orgerons or one Ed Orgeron-sized duck? I'll hang up and listen. And so I started thinking to myself, the answer to this question notwithstanding, whatever it is, you'll have to be properly equipped, right? And the only place on planet Earth that could properly equip you for either of these fights is Academy Sports and Outdoors. So what I've done is I've taken a friend of the program and I have shamelessly used them to segue into an ad read so seamlessly that not a one of you saw it coming. I doubt the staff even saw it coming. But now that you're here, please let me tell you one thing. Easter weekend is upon us. It feels good pretty much everywhere in the country right now, at least after the bad stuff moves through. It's time to get outdoors. Don't be that person who gets to late May and you're still the color of this paper, at least if you're of my ethnicity, because you haven't gotten outdoors. Get outdoors. Make it happen right after you go to Academy Sports and Outdoors. And if you can't get to Academy, that's fine. These people are realists, just like I am. They understand. Some of you live in like Las Cruces, New Mexico, and I have not done the research. So I'm just going to roll the dice and say maybe Las Cruces doesn't have an Academy. If you do, forget everything I'm about to say. But if you don't have one, that's fine. Academy.com is your hookup. No matter which kind of recreational activity you're about to get out and take part in, I don't care if it's camping, I don't care if it's badminton, I don't care if it's tennis, they've got it. They've got the gear. And you know what else they have? Our back. Because this show is brought to you exclusively by Academy Sports and Outdoors. So whatever you feel like doing this spring, as long as it's within the confines of the law, do it. But let Academy help you do it. That's all I'm asking. Thank you, Parker. They're watching us tonight in Mableton, Georgia. Parkersburg, Iowa is tuned in. And I spent an inordinate amount of time yesterday in beautiful Tunica, Mississippi, on the Blues Highway there, Highway 61. And while I did not find what I was looking for over there, that being severe weather, tornadoes, and the like, did have some great conversation with the two ladies there at the Visitor Center. I highly recommend the Visitor Center in Tunica, Mississippi. Um, I just did the Academy ad read, but 
what I had written down is Jesse's ratchet idea. Because it was Jesse's idea to use that tweet to segue us into the ad read. So, never say I'm not prepared. Let's continue right back here into the mailbag. Next up, we have Jerry Heartbreaker. Jerry said, which college football personalities out there, other than yourself, are most real world famous? Please don't tell me it's Brandon Walker. Well, I can assure you it's not. Brandon Walker claims to be from Mississippi. I spent yesterday in Mississippi. No one there even knew who he was. So it's not Brandon Walker. Unfortunately, it's also not me. Think about the question here. How many folks in the world of college football media are like real world famous, where people who don't care about college football know them? There's one that stands out head and shoulders. This is a classic fill in the blank and it's not even close situation, which we rarely have on this show. It's Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow is recognized all over the world by people who could not pick out Gainesville, Florida on a map, people who could not name you 10 college football mascots. They know who Tim Tebow is for all kinds of different reasons. Tebow transcends college football. Tebow transcends sports. Let me give you a story. When we were at the national championship game back in January in Indianapolis, I was in the JW Marriott gym downtown in Indianapolis. That's where everyone was staying. It was the media hotel. So let me paint the picture for you. There are a lot of people in this gym that you would recognize. Marty Smith was in there. Uh, Cannell was in there. Laura Rutledge, I think, was in there at the time. A lot of folks from TV were in there because everyone's staying at the same hotel. It's the morning of the game. So a lot of people have work to do. So they're getting a quick workout in. So anyway, if you love college football, you would have been able to pick out like a dozen people in the gym. But there were also people there on normal business who didn't even know the national championship game was in town who were staying at the Marriott. They were in there working out. They didn't really recognize any of those folks. They didn't recognize me. They didn't recognize Marty Smith. Tebow walks in, not trying to attract any attention, slips in there, uh, has hat pulled down, and you could see every head. And you could see the whispers, and, and you could see this right here, this move right here. That was happening. If you're listening on podcast, I just discreetly took an iJosh photo. That was happening all over the place. Uh, you had a couple of folks wanting to walk up and shake the hand. That is real world famous, which is a lot bigger and more broad than being college football famous. But Tebow's had that. Let me tell you the most fun thing to watch, though, when you have someone like that who's kind of polarizing for whatever reason, and he's in public. I've been to, I've been to several places where Tim Tebow's there, and I always love watching his interaction with people because I know what it's like on the internet. And the most fun thing for me to do is stand back cross my arms, and watch the difference in real-world face-to-face Tim Tebow interaction with people versus anonymous internet dude take on Tim Tebow. Because you don't have to scroll too far on the old internet before you see a dude with 57 followers, you know, Daryl from Destin, Florida, trashing Tim Tebow anonymously. But then when Daryl meets Tim Tebow in real life, he either doesn't say a word to him or he asks for an autograph. Because there is a very big difference in seeing a grown man in person versus talking about a grown man on the internet. Which, side note, should be emphasized. Because when Tebow was in the gym, he looked like a pro wrestler. Looked like the ultimate warrior. I don't know what he was training for. It was impressive. Last story. This takes me back a ways. 2008 or 9, when Bama and Florida played, Tebow's in college at the time, when they played in the SEC championship game, I got a buddy back home. We'll call him Greg. 
we went to the game. And he's a hardcore Georgia fan, but he just went to the game. And so it's Bama versus Georgia. Like We grew up in the SEC, so we want to go to the game. We went to it several years. This dude claims to despise Tim Tebow. I'm talking about would take a flamethrower to the very ground Tebow walked on, uh, partly because of what Tebow had done to Georgia, and partly because, you know, if you were a non-Florida fan in the SEC, you were just not supposed to like Tim Tebow. We're underneath the Georgia Dome where the buses pull in. And Florida's bus pulls up. And let me tell you who walks by us. Aaron Hernandez walks by us. Leave that alone. Uh, the Pouncey twins walk by, looking as intimidating as probably any human beings you'll see. And so then comes Tim Tebow. And this fool standing next to me, who has trashed Tebow in both of my ears for the last several years. I don't know how frequently Tim Tebow walks by. This dude is able to utter two words. And the two words were, hey, Tim. Almost in a falsetto. That's how high this man's voice went. That's the effect that Tebow's had ever since his playing days, up to and including whatever you call what he does today. That's the effect that he's had on people. Tim Tebow, that's the guy in the college football media world who is real world famous. There is a difference when he enters the room than when every other one of them enter the room. All right, let's dive back into the game on the field. Well, someone has said something here, and I, oh boy, I've got to kind of take umbrage, Jesse. Is that one of your words? Let's take umbrage with this, shall we? Michael Davies, if you want to follow him on Twitter, at wellgoodgrief. Put underscores between well and uh, good and grief. Colin, that's a terrible end for you, so you can use this. Michael Davies hit us up. He said, will Brian Kelly's coaching translate to the SEC. There's no debating his track record, but he looks like a really odd fit at this point. It feels like we'll be comparing it to Charlie Strong and Texas in three or four years. It wasn't until I got to the last part that I really said, what? Like up until that point, I just said, I don't know, Michael, I disagree. Then he went the Charlie Strong route. I want to address that first. Okay, this is, this is not even apples to oranges. Brian Kelly and Charlie Strong's like apples to bowling balls. So I'm just going to take that respectfully. I'm going to toss it off to the side. Charlie Strong, if you have forgotten, let me refresh your memory. He had been at Louisville, therefore he had been a head coach four years. And they went to the Sugar Bowl, or they had that big year, and so he uses that to springboard himself into the Texas job. Brian Kelly's been a head coach 18 years before this year. Like Brian Kelly has over... 400% the head coaching track record and a BCS title game appearance and two college football playoff appearances. There's nothing you have to guess about Brian Kelly. You had to guess a lot about Charlie Strong, but even if Charlie Strong had been around for a long time and had fully established himself, you still had the Texas dynamic in play. There are a lot of, for all we know, qualified head coaching candidates who have gone to Texas and had it not work out because of Texas. It's what Sark is dealing with right now. That's the great unknown. We've talked about it very often on this program about Texas and Steve Sarkeesian or Texas and any head coach. It's only the first chapter of the book when you tell me who you're hiring at Texas. The next three or four chapters is, okay, is everyone going to get out of the way? Is this, 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 and this going to be different? So my point is, Texas in many cases is the worst comparative analysis that you can use. So let's remove the Texas and the Charlie Strong equation. Let's just talk about Brian Kelly here. 
a lot of people are saying this. It's not the first time we've even spoken about it here. A lot of people are saying what Michael said. He's, he may not even be in the minority. I haven't taken formal polling on this, but it seems to me like a lot of people around college football agree with what Michael's saying. Maybe I'm the, the lone wolf out here who believes Brian Kelly will be good at LSU. But here's what I want to ask, okay? So if we were on the debate stage, here's what I'd ask from you, because you're making the more definitive statement than I am. All these folks right here telling me Brian Kelly's coaching style will not translate to the SEC. Well, that's all well and good, but I want you to come back and I'll give the floor to you. Give me specifics. Don't tell me in some abstract manner, oh, Brian Kelly's not going to fit here. Why? Well, it's just, it's not going to translate. Why? Ah, it's just not a good coach fit. No, you're talking about coaching. Your words, not mine. You said coaching. So I want you to tell me, what about Brian Kelly's coaching philosophy or his specific schemes that he likes to run or what he believes in on third down? What is it about Brian Kelly as a football coach that worked at Notre Dame that will not translate? to the SEC, almost like there's a border you have to cross and he doesn't have the right papers. What is it? And every time I ask for the specifics, people start stammering and they start tripping all over themselves. Because the fact of the matter is, it still boggles my mind we do this, people keep, people keep, I almost spit all over myself, people keep speaking in theoretical terms about Brian Kelly, like we haven't seen the guy do it for almost two decades successfully as a head coach. I've seen it work. And I've seen him do it with lesser resources, with harsher academic requirements. So you're telling me that the guy who's already shown to be successful elsewhere is going to come to a place where they're even more invested and maybe even more passionate and certainly better resourced and going to have access to more athletes. But it's not going to work here because why? Don't know. It's just not going to translate. I look at that and then I see right through it. There's nothing to that. Like if Brian Kelly doesn't work out for whatever reason at LSU, it won't be because there was something that worked at Notre Dame that all of a sudden wouldn't translate to Southern football. The other thing is we've seen this movie down here before. Like if you're 19 years old, you don't remember when Nick Saban came to the SEC. Little JP does. And guess what little JP remembers all the older folks around him saying? They said, number one, who? They went to Michigan State and got the head coach. See, 19-year-olds out there, you just know Saban is the greatest of all time. Once upon a time, he was just another coach. LSU went and got him. You know what they said? Okay, he was okay at Michigan State. But is that going to translate to the SEC? It turns out the formula for winning one place can be the formula for winning any place. But then it got even better. It got saucier in the mid-2000s. There's this guy out at Utah which according to these opinion makers was basically over in Russia. And this guy out at Utah is doing big things. I think he was at Bowling Green or Purple or Orange before that. His name is weird, urban, urban legend, something like that. Anyway, Florida just hired him, man. Did you hear this? Well, let me tell you about this dude at Utah. You may have had something that worked at Utah, but when you get to the SEC, what worked at Utah, not going to translate down here. And the guy from Michigan State came in and won a championship at LSU and reinvented the entire sport in the process and then went off to the NFL for a couple of years before coming back and laying waste to the sport for another decade and a half. The dude at Utah ended up being named Urban Meyer, came down to Florida. All he did is win two titles, three years, and totally redefined what offense was in the SEC and, for that matter, college football. 
The formula is the same regardless of where you are when it comes to how to win. The same things win that have always won in principle terms. You may do things philosophically or schematically a different way. Uh, Brian Kelly had something that worked at Notre Dame. I highly suspect it'll work at LSU. In fact, I somewhat suspect you may even look at it and say, wow, Brian Kelly's actually doing better. His teams are performing at a higher level at LSU than they did at Notre Dame. Not that those Notre Dame teams were bad, but wow, I've never seen a Brian Kelly team perform at this level. Wonder why it is. Well, the reasons are going to be called uh, Thibodeau and New Orleans and places of that nature where those athletes reside. That's the reason that it'll look like that. I, I dismiss this, this notion that whatever he had at Notre Dame is not going to translate. It's not going to work there. You're going to have to bring me more than that. Next up, sounds like a dumb question, but it's not a dumb question at all. Todd asked, can an argument be made that it's more enjoyable to be a fan of a good team fighting to be great than a great team with expectations to win every game? Now, Jesse brought a, a butter knife to the fight earlier in the newsroom and started making what he thought were great points on this, but I disagreed. Everyone would love to win a national championship. That's true. But there is a certain authenticity, a certain innocence, if you will, when a program is first starting that climb. Everyone remembers it. If you've ever made it to the top, and if you've ever gone on a run, even though, yeah, man, you'd, you'd love to win a title every year, people always look back fondly on the climb. It's the same way in life. You can watch people who have long since taken over sectors and industries, but what do they want to talk about? They don't want to talk about the latest million they made. They don't want to talk about the latest merger or acquisition. They want to talk about the climb. It's enjoyable. It's the most memorable aspect of the arc of achievement. Write that down if that doesn't exist as a term already. So in this world, what Todd was asking about is, is it more enjoyable? Well, that's all relative. So what do you enjoy the most? Because we talk about the consequences of success on this show a lot. And those are only reserved for the very elite few that win titles and they're at the very, very pinnacle of the sport. Those fans are not always enjoying everything. Now, you think that sounds dumb because how could you not enjoy winning all the time? Well, that's just it. Winning is no longer good enough. This is not the NFL. This is college football. And in college football, when you're at the top of the game, you play, you know, let's say you're, let's say you're Ohio State and you're playing Indiana this Saturday. It's not enough to beat them 31 to 29. You're favored by 23 and a half points against them. You barely squeak by Indiana. I can tell you right now, those message boards, the rest of that evening and into next week are gonna be insufferable. Like talk radio in Columbus the following Monday, old Zach Smith's podcast there, it will be insufferable because winning's no longer good enough. Now, does that sound enjoyable? Because I can tell you, if you're Indiana and you beat uh, Purdue, let's say, it doesn't matter if it's 31-0 or 31-29. You guys are in heaven the rest of the evening. Why? Well, the expectation level's different. But guess who's having a more enjoyable Saturday night? Forget about the rest of the context. Just that moment in time. Who is enjoying themselves more? It's the team over here who's over-under win total seven and a half games. It's not the national championship contender. So yeah, everyone wants to be in that position where you can win a title. 
But like I said, this is not the NFL. So the other part of the reality, this is what Jesse and I were talking about earlier, the other part of the reality is, this is harsh. I don't know if anyone's ever realized this before, but I'll be the one to break the bad news to you. There are some programs in Power 5 totally incapable of making the playoff. Gasp, I know, but it's true. So I'm going to pick a team, and it's Colorado. And this is no knock on Colorado. But if Colorado fans show up week one this fall with the same expectation level as Alabama fans, it makes no sense whatsoever. However, if Colorado fans come to the table and say, you know what would be great? If we made a bowl game, or if we got even above and beyond, if we got to seven wins, like can you imagine what January would feel like or what late December would feel like? Well, all of a sudden, you've got some wiggle room there. And you got some room for some Saturdays to not go your way, but it's not at the first sign of trouble. You just throw your hands up in the air and say, well, there goes this season. That's, that's no way to go through life for a Colorado fan. Now, an Alabama fan, Terry and Trustville, Abner and Alabaster, it's a little bit different for them. But expectation and the calibration of expectation is so much more important because of the nature of this question. If you don't have your expectation levels properly calibrated, then you leave it up to other people to set your expectation. And if you're not careful, you'll listen to these people out here talking about the playoff being the center of the college football universe, and you'll think to yourself, well, my team's not in the playoff conversation. That means my, my team must be a failure, right? No, no. If Colorado's not in the playoff conversation, this, this September and October doesn't mean anything. Colorado has no business right now being in the playoff conversation. Calibrate those expectations, kids. And parents, make sure those kids have properly calibrated expectations. Uh, there's another very controversial topic while we're at it that someone asked about. So let's, let's go ahead and hit it. I think some of you have already guessed what it is. Russ, living in Houston, Missouri. Why are preseason polls always incredibly wrong on most rankings by the end of the season? Well, that's because a lot changes, Ross, first and foremost. But there's a camp that some of you may think I'm in that I'm not in. A lot of you are in the abolish preseason polls camp, and I've never been there. In fact, it might surprise you to know I'm even on the opposite side of the coin. I actually kind of like preseason polls. I was just on TV there in the B-roll. I actually like preseason polls, but I properly interpret preseason polls. Notice I didn't say I respect them. In fact, I have very little respect for most polls. Some more than others, or some less than others. A certain three-letter poll was released today by a certain four-letter network, and that's as far as I'm going to go on it. But I'm telling you right now, there's a program in Lee County, Alabama, that this certain poll ranked top 10, and the fans of that team are making fun of the poll. Because the fans of that team know how ridiculous it is that that poll ranked their team in the top 10. Not to give anything away. Preseason polls are fun, and that's all they're meant to be. And largely, they're meant just for preseason fodder. I have always fancied myself as someone who can properly interpret preseason polls. What they're not is an end-all, be-all. Uh, they should not be your compass to the season. They should be written in very light pencil, figuratively, of course. You do that in the magazine industry, and you're going to be out of business very soon. Preseason polls, to me, are just something to do to pass the time. Here's the key. The key is, number one, know how to interpret them, which is just kind of rough guidance to go off of. It's like if I'm looking at the GFS, but it's seven days out. 
I don't care where it says specific squall lines are going to be. I just care if it's telling me there's a chance, you know, I got an amplified pattern here. There's a chance we could have some unsettled weather in the south. That's about all that model's good for seven days out. A preseason poll, if it tells you Iowa State is number seven preseason and Oklahoma's number five preseason, whatever. Just take it to mean both teams are expected to be pretty good. And then that's it. The key is that. But the second key, and this is more important if you're participating in polls or you're putting together power, power rankings of your own, you've got to be able to pivot on a dime. Don't ever marry yourself to opinions that were created in August. Because the sum, after this weekend actually for a lot of you, if you're having spring games, the sum of what will change about your program from let's say Sunday all the way through SEC and Big Ten and ACC media days through the opening of spring or fall camp is nil. I mean, maybe you make some moves in the transfer portal, but yet there's so much time to talk between spring practice and fall camp that people work themselves up to believing things out of boredom that may or may not be true, and they marry themselves to the opinion. In our industry, it's really bad, because like I'll do who knows how many hundred talk radio spots in those months. And if I just decide I want to sound cool and say Kentucky is going to win the SEC East, I repeat that stuff so much that by the time we actually get to fall camp opening, it, it's like it sounds, it sounds second nature to me. And therefore, I may, if I'm not careful, watch Kentucky struggle in week one and struggle in week two and think to myself, oh, they'll get over it. That's because my default is an opinion that was born in June that I have no business being married to. If you, if you have the preseason rankings, that's cool. But you should also be willing for them to be shaken up over one Saturday in week one more than the previous three months. The previous three months means nothing. No football happened. Football actually happens in week one. So rank them. By all means, rank them. But if someone who you rank top five shows themselves to be fraudulent in week one and someone you have outside the top 25 looks stellar, don't find yourself saying, ah, let me give it a month. Let me give it a month. No, you just saw the total amount of football that anyone has seen in 2022 so far, week one. Be willing to move off those preseason rankings and preseason opinions. If you're willing to do that, I have no problem with preseason polls. The problems people have had in the past is folks don't do that enough. And especially in the era where AP voters either decided the national champ or, or they had a say in the formula for the BCS, your problem was, was justified. Your problem was, wait a second. So this guy who writes for a paper in Colorado Springs, Colorado, won't move this team out of the top five. And it stands to reason the only reason he won't do it is just because he had him there in the preseason. And this team at number seven has shown a much better resume then the team at number five, that stuff is valid. That's a valid criticism. So if you got someone who understands how to do a poll correctly, then and only then am I okay with them. All right, we got to get out of here. I got a long drive tonight. Hey, I got a story for you right quick. So the folks from Cameo were recruiting me for a while. And I, I, was, I was not really in a great big hurry to join. But I joined last week. Cameo is a service where you can buy shout outs, happy birthdays, whatever. That's how most people use it. Well, knowing our audience, like I knew I did, I thought to myself, I bet some people are about to get really creative with these. So I had a lot of bookings right off the bat. One of, two of you booked me. I don't think this will be the last two who do this. Two of you are engaged to be married. 
and you booked me to try and convince your fiance in two minutes or less that fall weddings are the devil, which they are. They are Satan's tool. And spring weddings are much more preferable. And I poured my heart out in those cameo messages. And then a couple of more people wanted me to try and convince their friend, who is an expansionist or a casual, that they are headed down the wrong road in life. It's not too late. Come back and join us. I did that gladly. Had a couple of happy birthdays in there. But I've had a lot of fun is what I'm trying to say with the cameo. So I, I didn't know how I would take to it, but I've taken to it very well. If you're interested, link is on my Twitter account, at LateKickJosh. I am out of here, and so are we. Have yourselves a great Easter weekend. We do not have a show Sunday. That is the only Sunday that we take off all year on Easter. We will be back Tuesday, but we're going to pay you back. We're just going to move the show down the road 48 hours. So Tuesday, Thursday next week. It's going to feel like November around here. Until then, for producer Jesse and director Colin, I am Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great Easter weekend. Take care, and God bless. It is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to the Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the south side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes May 10th. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply.